0: Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the show about public speaking and presentation skills and influence and persuasion with your host, John Ball. The Speaking of Influence podcast is published and distributed using Buzzsprout. If you want to get your podcast started today, check out the link in the show notes. Okay, hello, welcome to Speaking of Influence. Now, this is a first for, for the show today because we are actually going live. We've never done that with the Speaking of Influence podcast <laughs> before, but we thought it would be something that's fun to do. And I'm joined on my very first ever live podcast episode by an incredible speaker, a presenter, an after dinner speaker. He's very entertaining, has a wealth of knowledge and experience in the world of uh, presenting, even on the old telly box. So please welcome to the show, Jeremy Nicholas
1: hi how are you fancy doing it live this is scary isn't it crikey whose idea was this
0: you know it, it is a little bit scary and yet it's, it's also kind of a lot of fun I've done I've been playing with the lives and doing a few shows and actually have been something I was really terrified of doing before has turned mm. out to be a lot of fun uh, mm. and you, you I guess you don't really know what could happen anything could go wrong last night in the middle of a, a online training program that i was doing the cleaner here tripped the power switch and everything went off (laughs) so that must that must have been hopefully we're not going to have anything like that happen to us whilst we're going live
1: today yeah let's hope so i've always enjoyed live better than recorded because if you do something live you know they're not going to edit it out Whereas if, you, if it's yeah. someone's going to, so I started in radio, and then when I moved into television, uh, we'd be recording a show, and I'd say something a little bit funny, and they go, "Oh, sorry, um, we didn't know you were going to say that. Could you just do that again?" Because we, you know, perhaps I was holding up something, and they didn't have the close in, and I so, th- and the next time it'd never be quite as good because it wouldn't be as spontaneous. You know, they say, "Oh, but yeah. that's not in the script," and I say, "Well, yeah, because I made it up." Oh, but we didn't know you are going to do it. No, I didn't know either. It just came out. And so that's why I always love live radio better than than telly because you could you know you have an idea it comes out your head it comes out your mouth and that's it. And I, I love pretty- I love
0: the spontaneity about it. One, one of the things I think is really attractive about podcasting is that you get to listen in on, on people's conversations and um it's rare. I mean other than when I, someone's really sort of fluffed up on uh, on a recording or or if it's just gone on way too long and I need to edit it down. I really don't edit my shows. I just kind of cut the beginning mm-hmm. where we're sort of like getting started started in the end just just so it's like people aren't waiting around and then we just go into it uh, and then I just leave it I try not to edit anything out of it so doing it this way uh, I think when uh, I'm taking a break from recording the show for uh, several months at the start of next year and when I come back I think I'm probably going to aim to do all the shows live because I think it's uh, actually a a fun way of doing it so uh, so this is this was kind of your your influence uh, your influence on me Jeremy that has pushed it to push the show to going into a live format in the future
1: yeah it was me that suggested it, wasn't it? And, it was uh, you that suggested it <laughs> yeah and i'm right. and I'm
0: glad you did. I'm glad you did it's uh, I, I think it's a really exciting way to take the show and potentially even gives the opportunity for anyone who might join us on online who's live to ask questions or, or post comments in the in the comment box as well
1: that I might even show on
0: screen if they're not rude so
1: yeah so it's it, it's just it's three minutes past ten o'clock in the morning in London, England. What time is it in Valencia? Um, it's one hour later in Valencia, although it shouldn't be. We're on the Greenwich Meridian, same as
0: you. But uh, uh, thanks to Franco, uh, who uh, who wanted to appease Hitler and put them, put Spain on the same time zone as Germany uh, oh. during the war. Um, and, and for some reason, Spain has never changed that back. You know, they've dug up Franco's grave. They've moved his body, but they haven't bothered to change back the time to, uh, to put us back where we should be.
1: I find that a bit strange. Yeah. You know, the more I hear about Franco, the less I like him. You know, I've heard all that. Open, now, on top of all of those bad things he did, he's messed up your time as well. I mean, that—that's me and Franco through, unfortunately.
0: I, I know. I thought he was so warm and cuddly before, and uh, it changed my mind completely. Uh, so, Jeremy, for for our audience, t- tell us a little bit more about uh, what what you do, like some of your experience, and and what it is you do professionally now.
1: Yeah tell us who you are Jeremy what the heck do you want who is this man um so i started as um a bbc news broadcaster in radio doing news bulletins and reporting and then i moved into sport and then light entertainment and then back to news but with a bit of a light entertainment twist because i would do the funny story at the end of the news bulletin so you you know when you're watching the news i don't know if it's the same in spain but or in the i think most parts of the world you have the serious news the murder the politics and the crime and then you'll perhaps have some weather and some sport and then at the end there'll be a funny story about a duck that goes to the pub and has a beer or something so i would do that one that would be my it's called an and finally story right um, so that's that's kind of my background and then i started because i was the guy off the radio i started being asked to compare conferences and then i realized that actually certainly in the uk lots of speakers at conferences are very very boring and they just you know just send you to sleep and i thought there has oh, to yes. be a better doing this and so one time I uh, I think this would be about 20 years ago now I was at this conference and I'd been paid to host a three-day event they've got people from all over the world to come to the UK for this event and the the chief exec of the organization was just so boring he droned on for an hour, and at the end, after we were having this sort of feedback, I said, "You know your presentation, would you like me to make that a bit more interesting for you?" And He could have been absolutely furious, but actually he said, "Yes, please, because no one else has ever told me it was boring and he became my first client and since then, what I do is I help people be less boring, but I tend not to use the word mm. boring in marketing because it puts people off, but you know make but what the phrase I use is make you more entertaining and engaging." And then alongside right. that, I've done stand-up comedy and I've still uh, written funny stuff for radio and TV and I do a lot of after-dinner speaking.
0: Now, I, I've seen um, from, from your website, I've seen some of the stuff that you do in presentations and you're definitely an entertaining and, and engaging and very loved presenter. Like people love watching and, and listening to you. And uh, and and having seen, you have a podcast as well, yeah. And uh, and having seen some of that as well, that's really entertaining too. Uh, what, what is your podcast called?
1: Uh, so I do a, a YouTube show called The After Dinner Show. And I did that uh, in lockdown just because a lot of my time work is in the evenings, going to dinners, eating a lot of chicken dinners and entertaining people from banks and organisations. And things. And of course, they all got scrapped. They all got cancelled. There were no dinners. So I thought the only way I can have dinners is to start cooking my own. And so I made up the show called The After Dinner Show. And I got all the after dinner speakers and uh, any keynote speakers that I thought were a bit entertaining. I'd have three on each show. So it'd be a perfect little zoom window of four. And the idea was they had to tell a true story. They had to tell it live and it had to be from personal experience. And, and that was it really. And um, yeah, we do that once I I used to do it once a week. I just do it once a month now because, you know, work's beginning to pick up, but uh, I don't know about you. If I, if I think of something funny during the day and I haven't got an outlet for it, it just feels like it's going to erupt like a spot coming out (laughs) of my skin. And so, in the times when I've been between radio shows or I haven't been writing for a magazine or something, I think I'll, I'll just have to ring someone up and say, I've just thought of this. I just need to tell someone. And that's really what the, the point of the, the after dinner show is just to get some of these things out.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, and
0: uh, uh, unlike yourself, I'm not uh, I'm not a comedian. Although I, I try to be funny and, and I love making people laugh. Um, but this has been one of the things that I've been doing in, in my show of having a, a series where I've been taking a look at humor as a as a presentation tool because it's one that people tend to shy away from, and also looking at it as a as a very I think a very powerful tool of influence and persuasion as well, which is one of the other aspects of the show. Um, I, I think in terms of what I've examined in this, it's one of the most powerful and often doesn't really get talked about in some of the psychological books and and studies that are done into influence and persuasion. And yet I think it's an an incredible tool. What what would be your thoughts on on humour as both as a presentation tool and as a perhaps a tool of influence and persuasion?
1: Yeah, so I'm a a fellow of the Professional Speaking Association of UK and Ireland. And so we belong to the Global Speakers Federation. So there's 15 odd organisations throughout the world, the biggest being the National Speakers Association of America. And they have a saying, should you be funny when you're speaking in public only if you want to get paid? So that's, (laughs) that's, you know, certainly in the professional speaking world. Now, a lot of people uh, watching this may not want to be a professional speaker. They may just speak as part of their job. But I always think if you put a bit of humour in, you're more likely to get asked again. And so that's going to help advance your career. If you're the person in your team that likes presenting uh, and then you're a little bit funny, then they might say, right, you were good at the regional conference. Can you do the national conference? And I think being funny does a couple of things. One is it it shows you have confidence in what you're doing. so, So the audience relax. And I think when you're watching any kind of speaker um the worst thing is when you're worried for them and you think oh god this is going on a bit oh he seems to have lost his way Oh, she doesn't seem to have the right slides so as an audience member the first thing I want is not to worry about them so if if they if they crack a joke early on I think oh that's fine they're going to be all right we can relax um and the second thing is you're going to hold their attention I always say Mm -hmm. if they're laughing they're listening now that doesn't mean that you've got to put loads and loads of jokes in because it might not be appropriate to your topic You know, if you're there, uh, if it's the annual conference and you're going to announce some redundancies, don't come on with some Monty Python gags and a bit (laughs) of You know, it's not going to move the room. But um, I think even in adversity, you know, with the with the pandemic at the moment, some of the best lines I've seen. virtual events have been to do with coronavirus you know but but sensitively dealt with don't dwell on the deaths but dwell on the nuisance of wearing a mask and your glasses steaming up or you know the things you used to be able to do the things you're looking forward to do so it's it's just always a question of um you know being sensitive with it and and not going too mad on it right well it, it looks to me like john's gone and i'm still here so why don't i tell you a story while he's away um so i interviewed this vampire Uh, And it was Christopher Lee. So he obviously wasn't a real vampire. He was the actor Christopher Lee. Now, what would you say Christopher Lee's most famous role in movies is? Dracula. Yeah, he was Dracula in about 15 different films. And so he came into my, I was doing the afternoon show uh, on BBC Radio London. And he came in and he was in the studio and he wanted to talk about his new film, which was police Academy mission to Moscow, you know, very prestigious movie. And so obviously he wanted to give that a bit of a plug. And I'm uh, wanting to ask him about Dracula because I was a horror film fan. My producer was a horror film fan and uh, we had loads of Dracula questions prepared. But Every time I asked Christopher Lee, the actor about Dracula, uh, he, he he just wanted to talk about Police Academy mission to Moscow. You know, bear in mind, he, he was in some fantastic films. He was in The Wicker Man. He was in Lord of the Rings. He was the Dark Lord in Lord of the Rings. Uh, He's in Star Wars. Um, some of the later ones. And so he just wanted to talk about his latest film. He did not want to talk about all his old films and especially didn't want to talk about Dracula because he didn't want to be pigeonholed as just a vampire. So I started uh, asking him loads of questions. Dracula and every time he just sort of rolled his eyes and he said, oh, I don't really want to talk about Dracula. I mean, I'm, I'm an actor, not, not just a Dracula. And I said, yeah, but I think you're best known for being Dracula, aren't you? And he said, no, I'm best known for being an actor of which one role is Dracula. And I said, yeah, but you played that role in 15 films. And he wasn't happy. Uh, So he kept steering it back to Mission to Moscow. I kept steering it back to Dracula. And eventually it was getting a little bit uncomfortable. And I noticed the producer over. So the producer's in another room over there behind a glass screen. And uh, the producer starts typing up little notes saying, ask him more about Dracula. It's funny when he gets angry. Now, bear in mind, he's safe because he's in another room. Uh, oh, hello, John. You're back. Hello, <laughs> I'm back. Yeah. Yes.
0: So somebody knocked out the internet connection, which is which is always oh, okay. fun during a during a presentation. So
1: where where are we at, Jerry? I think you were keeping people entertained there for us. Yeah, I was just doing a story um, about the time I interviewed Christopher Lee, the actor. Oh no, right. So I'm interviewing Christopher Lee, the actor. This is a few years ago because he's dead now, and he. Didn't want to talk about being Dracula, even though he played a Dracula in fifteen movies. He wanted to talk about his new film, which was Police Academy: Mission to Moscow. You know, which obviously a very prestigious movie. He wanted to give it the credit it deserved, and I kept asking him about being a vampire. And so, the like as I kept steering it back to vampires, and he was getting really, really angry. The producer wrote on the screen, "He's he through the glass in another room. Ask him more about Dracula. It's funny when he gets angry." <laughs> <laughs> now, bear in mind, he was safe in his little room. I was in with the vampire. I didn't have any crucifix or garlic or anything. He was safe through there. So I we did go back to a police academy. And then the producers started writing up, people are now ringing in saying, it's really funny when you make him angry, keep asking him about Dracula. So I did. And we did that. And it was very uncomfortable. And we got the end of the interview and I was really relieved to have survived. And at the end, I got up and went to shake hands with him and went around his side of the desk in the BBC studios, and I noticed to my horror that by accident a second screen had been left switched on round his side, and he'd seen all of that stuff. Saying, "Ask him more about Dracula." It's funny when he gets angry, <laughs> and he'd seen it all, and he'd kept calm. But I did not sleep a wink that night because I just thought he's going to come for me in the night. Um, but, <laughs> so I kept my window bolted. I had a stake by the bed um, because I get hungry when I'm scared, and because. Um, I know he is dead, isn't he? But you never really know with that sort. If they're going to come back,
0: right? Yeah, there, there's. Uh, I've seen those Hammer horror films, and uh, exactly. he, he always seems to come back somehow. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so yeah, you may. You you probably should never rest easy. He might never grant nice you shoulder. the. Uh, yeah, he might grant you eternal life.
1: Yeah, I mean, London's scared of coronavirus. I'm still more scared of Christopher Lee coming back and biting me in the neck <laughs> because of a bad interview I did about twenty years ago. <laughs> But but the, nowadays I'm
0: I'm sure thing, things things are, are better now. And that's a, that's an amazing story. I, I think he was an incredible person or someone I think yeah, someone would love to love to admit. So I think that's wonderful. Mm, Start Wars for, what
1: you loads of things.
0: Yeah, oh my goodness, yeah. And, and I think they they CGI'd him even into one of the recent ones, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because I, he wasn't I, available they, on account of being dead, that's what they did well
0: yeah same with uh same unfortunately with carrie fisher i think mm. and uh, i don't think cgi is quite there enough yet to be fully convincing that uh that it's the real people there but mm. i'm sure we're not too far off it which yeah, is, which is scary scary in itself you know you see all these deep fake stuff where they can get people to to say mm. just about anything would, like get the voice recorded and synthesized and um mm. that's pretty scary stuff
1: mm. So what that illustrated there when the line went down is I just went to one of my signature stories and I've got probably about 85 stories I could have done at that point. Um, And I actually started a story and realized it didn't have it was very English centric, not much global appeal. And I said, oh, actually, this is a better one because everyone would have heard of Christopher Lee, whereas my other one was about a local radio station in Hull in the northeast of England. (laughs) And it relies mainly on me doing a a, a very, very uh, accurate Hull impression. Because it's one of the hardest accents to do, but then I realised actually most people in the world just hear British. You know, they don't, they can't identify between the regional accents. Most people of the world, there's two British accents. One is quite posh like this, and the other one's a bit London like this. Yes, you're right, mate. Call cool, blimey, governor, cheeky Mary Poppins like that. And I was going to do Hull, Northeast England. All right, where they drink Kirker Curler and a glass of dry white wine that I bought for 9 Nanty Nan, and you know, and the subtleties in Yorkshire that would go down really well. But across the world, people just yeah. think. It still just sounds like you're doing the the Queen. <laughs> exactly. They just hear it. They just hear it in English or, or British, British accent. Yeah. Uh, that brings up a bit of a British accent, and I think well, but there isn't a British accent, is there? Because no. the Scottish accent's so different to the English and the Welsh and the Irish, you know, Northern Irish. It's just yeah, oh uh, yeah.
0: But it, but it is interesting how people can't hear accents because you know at times I've been asked if I was Scottish or Welsh in, in other countries with people who just. Just don't recognise the accents, but you know, I'm sure it's just as much the case of, you know, I I don't hear distinct regional accents here in Spain where I live as much as uh, someone who who is local can distinguish them and probably tell pretty quickly where someone comes from by the way that they speak. Uh, but uh, I, I did, I did even live in Hull for several years as a kid, and I wouldn't have known how to do a Hull accent. I was there for maybe two or three years as a child, and uh, yeah, yeah. Then, then we moved, then we moved south, and it all went away. And now, now I do speak a bit more, bit bit more BBC.
1: Well, I do always encourage uh, speakers that I coach that want to be funnier to do accents in stories. So because I'm sure you'd agree stories are, are way better in presentations than loads of facts. Facts people forget, stories they remember. And the, the key is you've got to wrap a fact up in a story to, to make it memorable. So it's like the, the fact is the cake, the, the the story around it is the icing on the cake that makes you eat it and then you remember it. And a great way to make people remember is to do a funny accent. Uh, and the and my top tip for accents is you need a key word or phrase that gets you into that accent. So for me, Hull, which is quite a difficult accent to do, is Coca-Cola instead of "Coca Cola," and a glass of dry white wine that I bought for nine ninety nine, because their "i" sound is "ah," and and pretty much every uh, every accent I do, I have a little phrase. That gets me. into So so London would always be, Go blimey, you know, and straight away, I think, right. Yeah, that's really? London. Uh, but also uh, the key it, is yeah. you don't have to learn how to do the accent all the time. All you've got to do is learn to say whatever the person in your story says. So it might just be 10 words in a sentence and you just learn that in that accent. So uh, in in my story, my whole story, it was all about the time I got ambushed live on air by a man with a machine gun. And the guy in the Hull accent says, take me through to the studio now I've got a machine gun. So I, all I needed to do was learn that. And now you really want to know that story, but I'm not going to tell it. And,
0: <laughs> but, but that's interesting because, I mean, I, I, over my time, especially over interviewing people on, on my podcast, I, I've heard mixed advice about doing accents in stories and, and – uh, and some people say stay stay away from it do it all in your own voice but maybe it depends on the kind of thing you're doing like for humor for mm. i i do think it's important to get into characterization i think that's a really key part of being able to to entertain and and especially if you want to be humorous and accents are a part of that but uh, i think some people worry of this this sort of fine line between it being uh um entertaining or even um funny but to, towards being offensive at what point does do trying to do a certain accent become offensive and and some people aren't quite sure where the line is and just say well just don't do it because we don't know where the line is
1: yeah so i, I think it's you've certainly got to avoid racial stereotypes mm. and um you know there's there's some accents uh you know, I, I would say don't don't do a stereotypical person from a country that then reflects them in a bad way but do get you know do an accent of somebody in, um, in the story that just makes them different to, to what you sound like. So the, I did a show in South Africa. I, I, I do a, a show at the Edinburgh Fringe, which is a humorous look at, sp- at public speaking. Uh, it's called What Are You Talking About? And I premiered it in Singapore. And then I did uh, the, the, just before I premiered it, I did a, a preview in Johannesburg. And I thought that's a long way from the UK. If it's rubbish, no one will probably get to hear about it. So that's fine. I'll try it all out. And I was billed as being uh, the 11th most famous BBC Jeremy. You know, this was my advanced (laughs) was The 11th most famous BBC Jeremy after Jeremy Paxman, Jeremy Clarkson, Jeremy Vine, Jeremy Bowen, uh, Jeremy Ball, who's the East Midlands Today social affairs correspondent, (laughs) who I just put in because he's a friend of mine. And I claimed I was number 11. And actually, I think I'm probably about number six, but 11 sounded better because it meant I could rant about being just outside the top 10. <laughs> um and so on the way into the show i was greeting the audience as they as they were handing their tickets in just as a, a way of breaking down the barriers i was welcoming them on the way in and this lady said to me oh you're not the bbc jeremy i thought you were going to be and i said oh sorry which one were you expecting no i can't remember his name but he's not you and i said oh i'm sorry about that uh how do you know he's not me and she went no i know what he looks like and he's tall and good looking and so that was nice, wasn't it? So then, of course, yeah, when yeah, I got on me. stage straight away, I had to mention that. And I said, I'm really sorry you have got the short, ugly one. Um, and then uh, in the Edinburgh show itself, I thought I want to do that story about the preview and the South African lady who said, you know, the BBC, Jeremy, I thought you were going to be. But one of my other stories also has a South African accent in, which was about the time I was presenting on how to use humour in business uh, in 2010 at Empress Palace in Johannesburg. And I split my trousers just before I went on. And mm-hmm. the, the whole kerfuffle about this. And then I eventually told the audience what happened. And at the end, I said, are there any questions? And this big Afrikaner guy stood up and said, now tell me this. Do you always wear those trousers for this talk? Like I packed a pair of comedy trousers. And then I thought, well, it seems a bit of a shame to have two South African accents in it. So in the Edinburgh show, I made the woman Welsh. And I said that okay. it took place in Cardiff. And she said, oh, you're not the BBC, Jeremy. I thought you were going to be. And that's fine. It, you know, I don't feel like I'd works. lie. It still works. And does, it, does anyone think, really, I, I heard an earlier version and it was in Johannesburg. Yeah, it was. But I just thought, show your full range, Jeremy. I mean, how many people can do South African and Welsh? Yay, you're bound to get an it, It's going to be worth another extra star on your review. Uh, it wasn't. I still only got three. But um, <laughs> I did get four stars from the Wii review. Which is uh, one of the but to me it sounds like a review of going to the loop, but it's called the We review <laughs> in <It's> Scottish. We <laughs> means little in Scottish. Yeah, I think I think there are
0: some websites that that actually do that as well, those kinds of things, mm. but uh, let's not let's not go there. But uh, what you so you did show in Edinburgh, that that's a pretty major thing. Um I think for anyone mm. who does that, is it is not a little bit terrifying at first before you before you actually go out there and do it.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, the more terrifying than doing it is getting an audience because it's the largest arts festival in the world. It's the whole of August and all the top comedians in the world go there. So why would anyone come and see me when they can see people they know off the TV, famous international artists? Uh, so I always try and make my show. It's about speaking and communication. And incidentally, it's funny rather than it'll be the funniest show you'll ever see. Because, for example, I never swear and you know most comedians would swear and so uh, people would expect that and and they've almost get they get so desensitized that if you don't put a swear word in on the punchline they don't even know it's a punchline because oh it can't be because he didn't use the f-word but i don't ever use the f-word so um i that's how i distinguished it from i said well it's it's more about storytelling and communicating and how to engage your audience but incidentally there'll be some funny stuff and so i i think if you're ever trying to get paid for speaking you have to have a real niche and you have to go really deep with that niche and not you know so if you say you talk about presentation skills well you know lots of people do that so you've, you've really got to target it you specialize in how to make accountancy interesting or you target you know a niche like lawyers or something or my big thing is adding humor and and like you say most people yeah shy away from it don't they They think no I i, I don't want to do that Um, and the the reason people steer away from humour is they don't want to offend people well my message is don't be offensive don't swear I I never say anything racist, sexist, homophobic anything that's going to make anyone in the audience feel threatened and also if it was on the front page of a newspaper that I'd said this would I mind and if someone told my mum I'd said it would I mind those are my things and if it gets through all of those it's in Um, and it does help that I'm not racist, sexist or homophobic whereas I think a lot of people are (laughs) and they think well I shouldn't really say that but I, for me, I don't even think it. So. So that's fine. Um, and then yeah. the other reason people don't don't um, use humor is they're worried they're going to lose their credibility. I was, is that something that you would think? Oh, I better not do that because people might not then believe me
0: i i wouldn't i i would just go for it but uh but i know when i when can when i encounter people it's like especially in things like my toastmasters club and things like that where where people want to try and be a bit more engaging and funny um they're more scared of that sometimes than of actually just getting up and doing the speeches which often for, for many people is terrifying enough just getting up in front of a bunch of people and opening your mouth is uh um is is one of the hardest parts but to, to add trying to be funny or trying to get people to laugh on top of that and um, mm-hmm. but i think that is kind of the the issue of it it's like well you, the whole time if you start telling yourself i have to try and get people to laugh and um, mm-hmm. you're already kind of telling yourself you can't do it and um, mm-hmm. i do think there are people who just think they can't be funny or that uh, people are just going to think that you know, they're, they're wasting the time or um that they not just won't take them like by being funny people won't take you seriously
1: yeah so i think the important thing um, I, I run a group program for speakers called Talking Funny for Speakers and the whole message of that group. We have an online call once a week and they, they're they always trying to be out and out comedians at the start. And by the end, they've got the hang of it. No, you, you're still being a speaker. It is. I talk about that icing on the cake. It's just the icing on the cake. It, you, your main message is not to get laughed. Your main message is how to be more creative in workshops or whatever your talk is about and then all the all the humor stuff is is to keep them interested it's just little bits to keep them hanging on and um so this we, we start off by saying uh, jokes are a bad idea stories are a good idea because if i do a joke if i say here's a funny thing instantly it puts pressure on you because you think well maybe i don't find it funny uh then you might think well maybe i not i don't get it um and or you might have heard it before. So instantly there's loads of pressure being put on you as soon as I say, here's the funny thing. Whereas if I just do my normal stuff and then just do a quirky line at the end of it, if you get it, then you'll love it. If you don't, you don't, you don't know that you've missed anything. Whereas if you do da, 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 a man walks into a pub, da, 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 and people do this kind of jazz hands, da, da. Well, if anyone knows that, I just think, what are you doing that for. So. So don't look as though you're trying too hard. Look as though it just effortlessly something has occurred to you. And that's what I'll I'll do with ad-lib lines. I'll do them as though they've just occurred to me, even if they haven't, even if I ad-libbed them three years ago, but it got a good reaction, I'll store it away and do it again. Now, a lot of my stuff actually is stream of consciousness stuff that just comes while I'm talking. But just in case it isn't, I've always got some backup things like that. But particularly i find with english speaking audiences across the world if you look like you're trying too hard and you look like you're steering them towards a carefully crafted scripted funny line they almost fold their arms and think oh and it, and you, instead of getting a laugh you get a groan and you don't want a groan because all the groan does is leads to more groans whereas laughs mm. will lead to more laughs so it, you've just got to look like it's occurring to you. People love it if you're naturally witty, but if you look like you're scripted and clever, they'll think, oh, you fancy yourself a bit. Right. It's a, it's a weird yeah. reaction. You've got to is. Look. You've got to look like you're making it up, even if you're not
0: right and and this is this is one of the things we've talked about before on the show about uh about improv and and spontaneity of this thing of um people think that you know, sometimes think even especially with comedians that you just get up on stage and do it and 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 yet it's not it's like you've got a whole pool of resources because of your experience because you've been in that mindset you're practiced with thinking that way and and you've probably got things you can pull on and say I could do this or I could do it like that and and so it's not all sort of um just come up with it on the spur of the moment it's like well a degree it's that but it's from all these uh, all this pool of resources that is specifically for that because you've practiced it and you know what you're doing it, whereas some people who and, and this is probably the same for people who just try and prepare a whole speech wh- whether it's funny or not uh, have it all scripted out uh, it ends up just sounding like they're reading it uh, which nobody wants to listen to as well so you know that that gets very uninteresting in fact i've, I've even worked uh, in the past with uh, like professional coaches because I work in the coaching industry as well um who who do coaching sessions than just kind of reading from a script reading questions from a script that's really horrible for me someone like me that's really horrible as well because it kind of says you're not really listening you're not thinking about what the right what's the right question to ask next or what should you you're just following a a formula following a a script of what you think uh, of what you've been told to say in coaching sessions rather than any kind of intuition as to what should come next and, and i think that is something you develop an intuition for what works and what doesn't work what feels natural and uh but i think you, you have to have that sort of responsiveness to uh to to whoever you're working with
1: hmm. yeah so i'm i'm a great believer in um having going in with a set amount of stuff that, that i know if i think of nothing during my routine i will stick to my set amount so let's say it's a 30 minute talk. I will go in perhaps with six five minute chunks and each chunk might be a story with a message. Now, if something happens at the event and I think, oh, I could riff on what a previous speaker said or I could have some fun with someone in the audience. I'll then think, right, all I've got to do is lose one of those five minute chunks and it completely comes out. It's like razor blade, razor blade, lift it out completely, squeeze it in and I'll ad lib to fill that bit. Rather than what I see some people doing is they'll go in with thirty minutes, then something will happen. They'll have a laugh and a joke about that, and then they'll either overrun or they'll speed up and speak very quickly. And you think no. So you've got to have whole chunks that you can take out to to keep you on time if you want to do any ad libby stuff. And the sort of ad libby stuff I like is finding the the connection between two things that don't appear to be very connected. There's loads of humour right. in that. So you'll see a lot of comedians, for example, that will be from one country and they'll be speaking in another country and they'll talk about the differences between where they're from and where they are now. So, for example, I was speaking in South Africa and in South Africa, they call traffic lights robots. OK, so you can instantly see there could be quite a lot of things. So a, a woman did say to me, I asked for directions. She said, now you go up the street there till you come to this giant robot and then you turn right and I'm thinking if there's a giant robot up there, there's no way I'm going up that street. <laughs> and so that's the yeah. difference between things. And that that is something that really did happen. Woman said giant robot. And obviously I said, What are you talking about? She went, Oh, that's what we call traffic lags. Um and then the connection between so I was working um Someone came to me the other day and they wanted uh, some humor adding to a presentation. So I I do I do a program uh, with international speakers. It's called Tickle My Keynote, where they come along with their talk and they just say, can you put some funny lines in? So Tickle My Keynote. Uh, my mastermind group kept telling me it should be called Tickle Your Keynote because I was offering it. But I said, no, I like Tickle My Keynote better. It sounds more mischievous. And I imagine people ringing me up and I go, hello, Tickle My Keynote. And they go, <laughs> "Hello, John, can you Tickle My Keynote? So, yeah, it's definitely mine. Anyway, what was the point of this? Oh, yeah. So I was working with someone the other day and she it was a, a talk for um, a convention that was people in the arts world, art dealers, painters, publicists for art. And the whole thing was that there's um, a lot of money laundering had been going on through the arts business. And so it was a talk on how, how to keep legal and how to keep the criminals out of art. So uh, I've just got a bit of paper here. So just just on a pad like that, I would draw... Do you remember Venn diagrams from school? Mm, Oh, yes. So So you draw those two circles like that. Love a good Venn diagram. Yeah, okay. So let's call one of them art and one of them crime. And I'm going to try this on you now. So I want you to think of something that goes in that middle one that connects art with crime that might be funny. So it might just be a phrase or a word or a concept. links art Mm -hmm. with crime okay now i realize i'm being a bit mean on you there so i'm going to help you out so can you think of something that you would do with a painting that you might also do to a criminal like like a criminal that hadn't actually done it that someone had put them up you know had made mm, it look like done it. frame framed Yeah. yeah so a painting gets framed and so could a criminal so framed let's put that in there that's a good one um and the other one is can you think of what you do to a painting that you might also do to a murderer? Except we don't do it anymore in the UK, but we used to. Uh would this be Pretty Patel's favorite? Hang hanging? Hanging, yeah. You hang a painting on the wall, and we used to hang murderers, but now we don't. We just put them in prison for a long time. So yeah, frame framing and hanging are both things that would go with art and with crime. And and from that, I would then build some funny lines saying at least we don't hang them anymore and they go oh, <laughs> you're a comedy genius except they wouldn't do it to me they do it to the person i was coaching they've done it and actually a lot of the people i coach say they, they feel guilty when they get a laugh and it's the a joke i'd help them with and i go but that's you know politicians pay speechwriters, don't they so why why would anyone feel guilty about that or i've got some people i coach that feel bad when they naturally come up with a line and then the next day they use it again at a different event and they say well, I feel a bit like I've cheated it because I've you know I didn't think of it. Went, yes you did you thought of it yesterday. I know but it wasn't natural. What I I remember on when I used to have a radio show I used to interview loads of comedians and I actually did a series for ITV where I, went, I visited comedy clubs to do TV reports on comedy clubs. And I interviewed a guy called Phil Jupiters, who actually became a good friend of mine because he supports my football team West Ham. And I said to Phil Jupiter, so I saw you do 20 minutes at the comedy store last night. How much of that will be the same as the previous night and the night before that? And he said, all of it. It's exactly the same. I went, really? So I said, but it just looks like you're just chatting. He went, Yeah, that's that's the secret. He said, if I'm touring and I'm perhaps doing, you know, over 100 shows a year, why would I think up a different 20 minutes each night? I haven't got time to do that. He said, so we, we, you know, we spend ages honing it down to that good, tight 20 minutes and then deliver it, deliver it, deliver it, perhaps for a year and then write a whole new set, you know, in the quiet summer months. Um, and, I, and I think if you as a speaker, if you if you think of something funny that goes in to things, so it might be about framing or hanging in an art crime talk, every time you do the art crime talk, framing and hanging goes in because you know, when I and, I, and when I started speaking, I used to feel a bit guilty about that because my background was radio and every day you you'd do a new radio show and you'd you'd have the same listeners and they would think, well, he did that on Monday. But when you're speaking at an event, you have different listeners every time. So your best bits do them again and again and again. And as speakers, we always want to do our new exciting stuff that we just thought of and the stuff that we've been doing for years. We're not excited by, but You know, if you went to see Queen in concert at Wembley Stadium and they didn't do Bohemian Rhapsody and We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions, they just did stuff off their new album, you'd be disappointed, wouldn't you? So yeah, yeah. I think every talk has got to have your greatest hits in plus some stuff off your new album, but don't just do the new stuff, you know, because the stuff that you're bored with, if people haven't heard it before, that's probably the best stuff
0: yeah it, it's really important to uh, to understand that as well i think if you if you never if you only ever do new material if, if, and whether it's speaker comedian or whatever if you only ever do new stuff you're never really going to have polished material so uh so you might get better at Delivering improv, delivering uh, on the spur of the moment, but you're never going to have anything that's really, really polished. And, and I think that's one of the things you, you probably do really need um, to to stand out and excel in in the industry is to practice well enough to to have stuff that's really polished. And I and I've seen this. You know, going to public speaking practice groups maybe actually sets you up to have that idea of it's always new it should always be something new and different and uh, there's very few occasions where someone will come along and deliver the same speech again and um, it's only really I think in competition level where where people will do that and they'll do a, a up to a certain level and then I think in the final levels of the competition they have to bring in a new one but um, when I've seen uh, people in my own in my own speaking club, practice their speeches and deliver them several times you actually do see qualitative levels of improvement in in how they deliver it that it to a point where after time it almost feels like a different speech to the first one even though it's the same material it's the same content it's Mm. well practiced enough to be delivered more effortlessly much more naturally it flows better and not having to take those moments to think about what you're supposed to be saying next or anything like that um so i think that that's a, a really powerful point you know if, if this is a one of the tools they use in in the um, music industry to, to introduce new songs that they want to be hits. they'll play them in between some of the most popular songs something you're already very familiar with and so that it doesn't feel like it's such a, a new thing for you it's got placed in in the middle of all this familiarity and that that is like well, very unlikely to notice that unless you know that that's a strategy that gets used but it's you know, suggesting something similar when it comes to speaking right
1: yes i, I think so um and I've, I've been to speaking clubs i used to go to the toastmasters in twickenham in southwest london where i live and um i enjoyed the humorous speaking contest but there was the, there seemed to be very much a structure and a formula and a right and a wrong way of doing it and i always think break out from all of that um i would often in the in the feedback sessions they go oh yeah this, you, you do this wrong and you do that wrong and then at the end of the night i'd win best speaker and i would think okay so i think you have to break the rules and if you think of in comedy someone like steve martin who does it every it does it his structures brilliant he does everything by the book and he's he's very widely regarded but someone like robin williams who's just a was just a wild card who just did it off the top of his head it was much more likable and lovable and funnier because he was spontaneous and you didn't know where he was going. So I, I do think it's good to, to learn all those rules that the speaking clubs teach you and then to completely disregard them and go your own way. Um, and it, and if you are in a contest, uh, people might go, well, yeah, they've actually done it, but, but uh, it's almost like on the judges scorecard, they wouldn't get as many points, but if it, it's, what is it like it's like in ice dancing Torvald and dean ice dancing at the olympics where there's one where it's like technical and so you wouldn't score very highly on that but like star quality you'd score very high artistic interpretation something like that so i I do think learn all the rules but then don't be afraid to break every single one of them because the rules are great and it gives you a great structure all that toastmaster stuff great structure but then why would you want to live in a structure you know because particularly if i'm speaking at a conference i want to be different to everybody else and if everyone's learnt the same way then uh i i don't get much better with practice but what i think i am better at is being able to be slightly different and so that's i think that's what i encourage humorous people to be, be slightly different but the big thing with speaking and humor is you have to keep your status you have to make sure that you're a wit high status not a clown low status and the difference being that you laugh with a wit and you laugh at a clown and that's you know you don't if you if you clown about um you know and you do funny faces and voices and fall about and swear people will laugh but they'll be laughing at you and then at the end when you deliver your final message where you want them to do something or some behavioral change buy something sign up for something when you get to your big message if you've clowned about they'll go oh it's it's the funny man you know and they won't believe you as much so keep your status wit not a clown laugh with not out
0: yeah, that, that's important. I mean, I, I have often said that you have to, as a speaker, as a presenter, you have to be prepared to go wherever you need to go uh, to to engage and, and entertain your audience. But there, but what you're saying is that there is actually a limit to that. It's like if they start laughing at you, you you kind of lost them to some degree. You definitely don't you don't want that. You don't want to be you don't want to be the joke um you want to want to make sure that the, the jokes are, are from you that the that, that people are laughing with you which is you know a good principle in life in general not just uh, on the stage right is that we don't really generally want to be that person who's uh, just uh f- tripped over in a field and landed face first in the cow pack and has everyone laughing at them it's uh, it's uh, the humiliation side we can do but i think w- what if you accidentally find yourself there can you come back from that
1: yeah, um, so I've seen um I, I saw a speaker once that there was a stage um that was four blocks and he was moving around quite vigorously and, and the two blocks had come slightly apart and his foot went down between the two blocks of the stage and everyone just laughed and I thought, How's he gonna recover from this? Uh and he said, Sorry about this, it's just a stage I'm going through. And I thought, Well, that's genius. And then um Afterwards, I had a chat with him and he said that uh, the other one that he'd been thinking about was, I will now take questions from the floor, which is was quite good. <laughs> and I thought that's, you know, that, that's impressive when uh, you can do that. So don't be afraid to laugh at yourself. I mean, I'm if ever I'm in trouble and when I mean in trouble, it means I'm not getting the laughs I think I should have, then I will be self-deprecating. One of my clients i work at the moment keeps saying self-depreciating, and he, and it's got to the point where I should have said it early on in in the coaching, and, and now, a <laughs> now you've left it too late. Me. I can't <laughs> correct you now because you've been saying it for quite a few weeks. Self-deprecating um, is a guaranteed way to get a laugh at yourself. So, for example, if I'm speaking in America or Germany, I don't want to make jokes about Americans or Germans because right. they'll hate me. So uh, if I'm in Germany, I'll say, oh, in London, we do this and talk about the ridiculous things that we do in London. And they will laugh because they go, ha ha, in London, they are so silly. And also, he seems like quite a nice bloke because he can joke about himself. Uh, my German's not quite as good as my South African Welsh. but Do um, you see the point? If you don't, you don't want to be attacking people because then they're like, oh, mm-hmm. who needs to come over here? Having a go. So I remember an American speaker once came to a conference I was at and he thought it would be a good idea for his walk on music to be God save the Queen, which is our national anthem. Okay. God save our gracious Queen. Long live our noble Queen. He walked onto that and his, his thinking was everyone would stand up because he <laughs> was the national anthem. And mm-hmm. he would be able to have a video saying, oh, brilliant. I got a standing ovation. And I haven't even said anything yet, but actually The audience, which was European but about ninety percent British, just sat down thinking, "What's he doing coming onto our anthem? You can't do that, mate. That's our tune." You know, and so everyone just folded their arms and, "How dare you?" (laughs) He got a little bit flustered, and then he started talking about how he loved the royal family and, in fact, he really fancied Princess Kate. And he thought we'd like that, and we we like, don't come over here, mate, making jokes about our Germans, which is you know like a we talk about the royal family because of the German heritage. Um, And a few other people started putting on Twitter, anyway, she's not a princess, she's a duchess, which is such a British thing. It's like, you know, they'll accept anything, but not a mistake, you know. (laughs) Um,
0: Some things you um, just shouldn't mess with her, honestly. Too, too divisive.
1: And that is tuning in to uh, the sense of humour of wherever you are. So don't look as though, you know, people in the uk will make jokes about the royal family all the time because we feel like we've paid our taxes for them we can joke about them and also you know i love the queen but i'd always make a joke about it because that's what we do uh yeah. but what we don't want is an outsider coming to have a go at our queen then it's like oh no no we're allowed to do it but you're not
0: yeah, you get a very uh, us and them kind of thing. So you have to get on side with your audience. Uh, you're. You, it was reminding me when you're talking about a, a speaker. I remember one time an American speaker who came to to present in the UK when I was still based there doing event work and stuff. And uh, started off his speech to a, a large auditorium of people saying, uh, "I want to start with a prayer to God." <laughs> it forms no (laughs) over half the room just walked out right then and there like yeah that maybe wasn't a good way to start like that's a a really good way to misjudge your audience but uh in the in the us i don't think anyone would bat an eyelid if somebody wanted to start uh so it was like a personal development seminar if someone wanted to start like that you you would assume that most most of the people have some sort of god belief but in in a, a uk event didn't go down didn't go down very well at all you really have to know your audience and get on side with them
1: yeah, no you do you have to really that you have to research the biggest thing I think beforehand is researching who your audience are, what they know, what they need to know, and also what what works with them and what you tr- must definitely avoid. You know, I speak a lot in the Middle East and there's things that I'd say in the UK I definitely wouldn't say in the Middle East. Sure. And and I I like you with the the Christianity thing with American speakers it's they they just think it's fine. Even when I've said to some of them, I, I don't think you should do that in the UK. Oh, no, it's fine. We do it all the time back home. Yeah, I just wouldn't do it in the UK. But they'll they'll still feel like it's not up to you, Jeremy, to d- decide about my God. So they'll do it and it will die. And they'll go, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. You know, well, so that's why whenever I go to a, a country I'm not familiar with, I'll say to people, is there anything I should know about here? You know, and it might just be something like hands gestures that might mean something completely different. In, in a country like, like for example, in Japan, you know, the, the, you you bow your head when you, you greet someone like that. Yeah. But I see a lot of um, people uh, when this greeting Japanese people, instead of bowing their head like that, they'll kind of go down like that, but still look up at them with their eyes, which is, you know, you have to. The whole point is showing you're lowering your eyes. Not It's not nothing to do with your head. If your eyes come up like that, well, then, you know, so just yes. the culture, you, you have to be aware of there was there was one american speaker that i did take the mickey out of once on stage because of something he'd said and he he said to me in front of the audience jeremy i think you're in danger of being a little bit patronizing and i said oh we say patronizing <laughs> <laughs> which didn't happen <laughs> you do know that means talking down
0: to people yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that yeah there are some good ways to handle that yeah um it's all all important things people who want to be a bit funny in their presentations is there anyone who maybe should avoid it who maybe it's like again this isn't going to work for you
1: yeah well if, if you're not funny at all and in your real life no one has ever laughed at anything you said then probably don't do it but how many people is that you know most people will get a smile at some so i think try it if it's not for you then don't don't do it. I, I like to give people a toolbox of things that can make them better speakers. And one of the tools is like a rapier wit. Think of it as like that. Try that. Oh, yeah. You'll do, you you need to use that a lot. And somebody else will say you, you could use it a bit. You could use it sparingly. You don't touch it because you're going to cut your fingers on that rapier wit. So but I'd say there's only about 10 percent of people that, that should completely avoid humor. It's the same way with an audience. I always think there's 10 percent of an audience that will laugh. Freely at anything, and ten percent that won't laugh at anything at all, and it's the other eighty percent in the middle you've got to persuade. Right. Um, some people laugh really easily. Now the eighty percent in the middle, they maybe forty percent of them will laugh if somebody else laughs, but someone else needs to start it. It's like a snowball that needs to start rolling down the hill. Uh, and I'm probably in that forty percent that will laugh, but only if somebody else has laughed first. I don't want to be the first one to laugh. So they're like little. It's like a barbecue. If you think they're little firelighters. They're, they're the 10% of easy laughers. And as soon as they catch light, then the then the coals around them will catch fire. And that's why you want your audience close in, it, sitting next to each other. You don't want them spread around on big tables in a massive room and they're all at the back because it'd be like a barbecue where the coals have been spread out too early and the heat disappears and you need heat. And that's why you need a low ceiling, comedy clubs, low ceilings, dark, bright lights on the stage so that it's really focused. You're trying to do comedy outdoors, you know, in an open air festival, all of the sound goes up like that, rather than going sideways and infecting your neighbours. And then you've got the other forty percent that will only ever smile, probably, and then ten percent won't laugh at all. And so, ideally, I want if I've got an audience of a hundred, then I want a couple in the front row that are going to laugh and, and spread. You know, the, obviously, you don't know who they are. But as soon as somebody in your audience laughs, focus more stuff on them, and it's a bit like throwing paraffin on the flame, getting that ignited. Good, that bit's good doing over there. Now there's someone over there laugh. Focus a bit over there at them, and then someone over there focus that on that, and then you've got these little flames, and gradually the whole thing will catch light. Apart from the ten percent they will always sit there, you know. Going, well, I know something funny is going on. I don't quite get it, but everyone else is laughing, so I'll just smile.
0: Yeah, I must, I must admit I've never really considered the sort of potential effects of uh, of the environment that you deliver humour in or the logistics of delivery in, in terms of how funny it makes things. Uh, mm. But yeah, it's, uh, it makes sense that that would be important. It's a, it's a great thing to consider, uh, which which is why why I like to have conversations with people like yourself who have expertise in these areas and great experience to share. And uh, so you've already mentioned that you you teach a lot of this to people you help people with their presentations you help people to be uh funnier with their with their own delivery and mm. so if the, there's anyone watching this live or the replay and I, I don't think we've got anyone live at the moment but if uh if they're watching the replay uh who wants to find out more about how they can come and work with you and and um mm. uh, be funnier in their presentations how can they do that
1: yeah so my website's jeremynicholas.co.uk um and i have sort of three levels that i work with people at there's my entry level which is my group program which uh, is a six-week program and you get to watch 12 five-minute videos on how to be funnier and it's techniques skills things to avoid things to watch out for uh definite guaranteed ways to get a laugh structures that you can use like doing three things you know how in speaking speakers always do three things in mm-hmm. comedy speaking we do normal thing normal thing weird thing or big big small global global local so there's three things but the th- the third one is weird and it sets up that pattern like three people going to a pub and one does something second one does something similar third one does something completely different so set up reinforce subvert that so that's one st- five minute video will be on that and there's 12 of those with little structures for guaranteed laughs um and then there's six live zoom calls uh, across six weeks and then there's an online mastermind group where people put their homework and everyone else comments on it and we do it limited to eight people at a time can sign up for it and i've done that four times in lockdown there's a new one starting in january if anyone wants to do that so that's the entry level one that's the group one because obviously i can do eight people in one go so it's much cheaper um the second one is one-to-one coaching where you might have a particular talk coming up and you might need say three zoom sessions to to get that into a, a funny way or you might just want to learn some techniques and one-on-one stuff uh so i've done that a lot with people that have got a best man speech or father of the bride speech or a bride right. speech or mother of whatever uh or i've done it with people delivering eulogies at funerals because often they want to make those quite humorous uh, and then a lot of it, just boring chief executives that know they're boring. And they say, someone says, I should come to you, Jeremy, you'll make this funny. And I go, yes, I will. Uh, uh, th- those are just online zoom things. And then the most expensive thing is tickle my keynote, which is, um, like the others, except I'll actually write the funny lines for you rather than coaching you on how to find the funny. I'll actually write them for you. And obviously that's why it's more expensive because you can then go away and for the next 10 years, use those lines. And I've only been paid once. Yeah. Uh, so true. yeah. That's that's really true like true. So jeremynicholas.co.uk don't go to jeremynicholas.com because that's an actor uh,
0: so you and you probably won't get the same the same level of uh, quality on your help with your speeches if you go no, to no. the dot com instead of the co.uk so no. should definitely, definitely come and work with you and i like that you've built in your residuals to your highest ticket item that it makes a lot of sense
1: yeah well, I've I've, I've I've been to so many speaking events over the years that I know all the tricks. Like, you've got to have three levels, and the, the premium one's got to be so expensive that everyone actually goes for the second one. But if you didn't have the third one, they'd always go for the first one. But actually, <laughs> I've, no, mine is group, then there's one-to-one, and then there's do-it-for-you. Because yeah. I, I, I've i done a lot of work with companies on how to be a good conference MC, you know, and I'll train all their people on how to be a good conference MC. And do you know what mainly happens from that? At the end of it, they'll go, actually, could you just be our MC? And I'll say, yes, I can. So I'm a great believer <laughs> in that. In the, You show people how to do something, and then they go, God, that looks really hard. Could you just do it for me? And it's the same way with Tickle My Keynote. I go, yeah, yeah I, I, I like the idea of being funny, but I just don't. I've never had a funny thought in my life. All right, well, I can do you 20. So, so with Tickle My Keynote, what happens is, Uh, i'll have a three-hour session with them where they'll deliver their stuff or i'll watch it on video or whatever and we'll talk about things you know like that art crime thing finding the things that are different all of that and then i'll go away for a week and then i'll come back and i'll have written 20 lines exactly 20 funny lines and then i'll spend an hour with them on zoom saying which of these do you like this is how you deliver it try that one yeah okay now try putting the emphasis on this word yeah no that's not working so it's it's a little bit bespoke, but, the, the you know, the, what you're paying for is that bit in the middle where I go away and come up with 20 things, which will come to me mainly when I'm walking in Richmond Park with the dog or I'm singing in the shower or I'm driving somewhere if we're allowed to drive at the moment, um, you know, and that's – most people, I think, when they're trying to write funny lines, they sit down at their laptop and think, right, okay, and then they wonder why they come up with stuff that just sounds like a joke, that mm. they would be in a joke book, you know. So yeah. –
0: I think we're still, in the UK, you're still allowed to drive to Barnard Castle, are you not, to test your eyes? if you've got an optician's appointment. Yeah, you can. <laughs> So that's good. Uh, so yeah, I, I had hoped to actually come on, on one of your courses recently, and ended up uh, having to move out. Well, not having to, uh, so ended up moving out of my my previous apartment and got a bit waylaid with all of that. So hopefully we'll be coming and joining myself in in January. That's my plan, right? Because uh, I, I I think I, there's there's a lot to learn from you, and and I, I've learned a lot just from this from our chat today. And uh, and as I you know, I couldn't have had a better guest for <laughs> for today's show because uh, I think most people had had I dropped off. Sort of five minutes into the presentation with the internet oh. knockout, might have struggled to carry it on. Uh, whereas you just started telling everyone a story, which is which is wonderful, and uh, that's uh, yeah. so that makes you the the ideal the ideal guest to have on my first ever live live version of the show. Um, let me just before we do close things off for today. Are
1: there any final words or thoughts you'd like to leave everyone with? Um, I think only use humor if you uh like it don't don't feel there's there's a thing don't know why in the speaking world people um have this idea oh you should always start with a joke i don't know whoever said that but well, that's bonkers don't and uh and don't do jokes do stories because jokes put pressure on so don't start with a joke just do just do a funny line that that chuck in and then if they if they like it great if they don't Mind. that that for me is my big so my, my big things are jokes no stories yes wit not clown and probably the biggest thing and i haven't mentioned this at all uh the biggest thing is if you say something funny pause and let them laugh Because I'll see so many speakers that will say something funny and then they'll carry straight on. And the audience start laughing and then they go, oh, hang on, I'm missing the next bit. So they stop. And then the next time they won't laugh at all because they're worried that you're going to miss the next bit. So that's my big takeaway. Get to the funny bit. Stop. Wait. And sometimes you'll have to wait maybe two minutes before they laugh, but they will. If you just stand there quietly for two minutes, they'll laugh eventually. And so what I used to do early on when I didn't really know if I was funny is I would just have a drink and I'd say da. da, 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 And I'd wait. And then they go, I think he said something funny. Oh, yeah, that is quite funny. And then they'd start laughing. So, water, I think people would think, Cracky, he must be diabetic or something. He's drinking water all the time. But it was literally, no, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm waiting for you to laugh without looking like I'm waiting for you to laugh. Yeah. So, the pause does two things. One is it gives them time to laugh, and one is that it gives them permission to laugh and kind of hints that I think I might have said something funny. And, and also hydrates
0: you, yeah, uh, which is which yeah. is even better when you're presenting. I don't have too much,
1: otherwise, if you're doing a long <laughs> set, you might need a wee. <laughs>
0: yeah that's probably not such a good idea if you end up having to uh, to rush off and and hold it in whilst you're presenting great great words of wisdom and advice and it's been a real delight having you as a guest today uh my apologies for the technical issues i'm going to probably go and find somebody to uh to pin that all on and uh and say something very delightful to them about why did the internet cut out part way through my way through my call but uh, jeremy nicholas thank you so much for coming and being my guest today on my first ever live show of speaking of influence next week my guest will be the uh, amazingly talented speaker and presenter Shola Kay. she is uh, she's a tedx speaker she is a former singer is a very talented lady and uh, we're talking about things like emotional intelligence about her experiences doing a tedx talk and things like that so uh, not a live show next time but definitely one you won't want to miss so see you next time for speaking of
1: influence thank you very much goodbye
0: Before you go, remember to like and subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It really helps with the show. Also, why not pick up a copy of my new ebook, The Five Key Beliefs of Bulletproof Business Speakers, available from my website, presentinfluence.com. If you want to get in touch, if you're interested in working with me or finding out about any of my courses or trainings or having me come and speak for one of your events or to your company or organization, email me, john at presentinfluence.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or maybe you want me to be a guest on your show, visit matchmaker.fm. It's a site that connects podcasters with hosts and vice versa. And you will find me and the Speaking of Influence podcast on there. I look forward to seeing you again next time for another episode of Speaking of
1: Influence.